23. Um, we're going to read through the remaining portion of the chapter this morning uh, through verse 29, beginning in verse 21. Let's read together. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. I want to point out a few things before we even pray and get into the text this morning. We'll come back to this in time, of course, not this morning, but in time. But notice what Paul says in verse 24. He says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now the next statement, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. We're going to begin looking at verse 24 this morning, but we're not going to be able to exhaustively uh, deal with the entirety of even that one verse. But I do want to point out to you that Paul is identifying not only the sufferings of Christ, but notice he is saying there are yet sufferings of Christ which are yet to be experienced that are going to be experienced through the people of God because we identify in his sufferings. And that is important to notice. I believe it's important for us to recognize that it's not just we are suffering for the cause of Christ. We are identified in the very sufferings of Christ himself. As he has suffered, so we also must suffer, as Peter says. He's left us an example that we would follow in his steps. And so this is an important part of this text. And also the mystery which was made known unto the Gentiles or among the Gentiles, as Paul already said in Ephesians, I want to remind you again of what this is. This, of course, is not only, when I say only, it's not in a general sense the gospel alone. It is the gospel specifically to the Gentiles, the redemption of the Gentiles, the body of Christ, the Gentile body of Christ which would be redeemed. And so that's what he is dealing with concerning this mystery. So we're going to begin our study looking into verse 24, of course, reviewing the previous verses quickly or briefly, and then moving into verse 24 this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Brother Robert, would you pray for us, please? Amen. Thank you and be seated. So over the past several weeks, we have been examining verses 21 through 23 of this epistle, in which we have discussed, addressed in verse 21, the past, in verse 22, the future, and verse 23, the present of state of the church at Colossae. The past, in verse 21, he says, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. 
So Paul again is explaining that they were alienated strangers from God, separated from God, and then that was manifested by the wicked works that they demonstrated. Then the future, he doesn't deal with the present, but then the future, Colossians 1.22, he goes on to say, to present you, he's reconciled you, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So the future of this past work of God, of reconciliation, removing the hostility that existed between the people and God, God has removed that for those who are redeemed through the, the, the death, burial, resurrection, the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he is saying that there is now a future, and the purpose for which God has done this is that he might present us holy, blameable, and reprovable in his sight. That he would present us perfect because of the perfect work of Christ. But then he comes to the present state in Colossians 1.23, and he says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now I'm going to spend a little bit of time here again because this is important to explain, and we've already dealt with this, but just in brevity to review it. The, I've explained to you previously that the if that is used in this text in verse 23 is not a condition for reconciliation. Paul is not saying God has reconciled you and then he says, oh, but if this is not true, then the reconciliation of God is not true. No, he's saying if this is not true, then obviously you've not been reconciled, but not that you've been reconciled and now you're not reconciled. It's not undoing the work that God has done. So this is not a conditional statement that Paul makes within this verse. But rather, just as in verse 21, this is the evidence of those who have been reconciled by God. So Paul's explanation of the past of these believers at Colossae in verse 21 provides clarity to the statements he made in verse 23. Let's compare them again together. Verse 21, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Again, the wicked works are not what alienated them. The wicked works are the manifestation of the fact that they were strangers to God. They were wicked in their heart, in their attitude, in their actions before God. Therefore, that means that their lives were that which portrayed the wickedness of their hearts. But then in verse 23, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So just as the wicked works was a result and manifestation of the enmity or hostility which existed within the heart and disposition or attitude of those alienated from God, in like manner, the expectation or the results of one who has been reconciled by God will be a life of continued growth in truth and pursuit of righteousness. Again, remember this. We never pursue righteousness to become righteous. We pursue righteousness because we've been declared righteous and the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed unto us. So because of what we are, we then live out that truth. Again, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul will say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is, the, what is the source of this? For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we understand, as we discovered last week, that the context of the if at the beginning of this verse is determined by the syntax that is used, that is the grammatical structure that Paul uses. The statement, if you continue, is in the present tense, the active voice and indicative mood. And the grammatical structure used in this passage then is vital to our understanding this truth which Paul stated within this verse. And this is why it's so important. Many have used verses such as this to say, okay, well, you can be redeemed and then you can walk away from redemption. You can be rooted and grounded in the faith, then uproot yourself and walk away. Let me remind you of something. All the Father 
hath given me, Jesus says, I will, should lose none. This is not your work, it is God's work. So when we come to passages like this, we have to dig into them and study them. We don't dismiss them, we don't ignore them, and we don't excuse them. We delve into them for the sake of understanding them that we might be able to glean and have a proper view of what is being stated. So the grammatical structure in this passage is important. The present tense is the tense that portrays an action in process or a state of being with no assessment of the action's completion. It's a continued work. The active voice indicates, again, that the subject is performing the verbal action or is in that state of being described by the verb. And the indicative mood is the mood in which the action of the verb or the state of being it describes is actual, as opposed to being possible or contingent on attention. It is the mood of assertion. It is the mood which is defined by a confident and a forceful statement of fact or belief. So Paul does not use this if, this word if, in this verse as a conditional requirement, but rather as the expectation and evidence of the one who has been reconciled to God. Here's the importance of this again. If these things are not true, then you've not been reconciled. That is absolutely so. But the other side of that is, if you've been reconciled, then these things are true. And so that this statement, this one word if, carries both senses of that. It is saying, oh, if this isn't true, then you're not reconciled. That is actual, actually as well being stated. But on the other side of that, if these are true, it's only because you've been reconciled by God. All the hostility and the enmity has been removed. As the scriptures repetitively declare to us, it is in the faithfulness of God that we are confident. In 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Paul says, In regards to redemption, salvation, faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Then, of course, in Jude verse 24, Jude says, Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding Joy. Might I say to you, he is not only able to, he is faithful to do this. So as we continue our study of this passage this morning, I want to begin by addressing the reason we have included verses 21 20 through 23, which we've already studied, within the reading of this morning's text, verses 24 through 29. So verses 21 through 29 as a whole is our text this morning, and the reason why is because it is one sentence which is to say that these verses carry a continuation of thought. In other words, all that Paul will address in the remaining verses of this chapter is directly related to verses 21 through 23 because it's all one statement. And we've examined that over the past few weeks. So this morning I want to begin our study of these verses, verses 21 through 29, specifically 24 through 29, continuing this, in which Paul declared his confidence in God's continued work of sanctification within the lives of the believers at Colossae. Paul does so by explaining the joy he had as one God had included in this redemptive work which God was perfecting in the lives of the Colossian believers. Once again, I I want to remind you that Paul was not the one God used to establish the church at Colossae, and he had never been able to visit the church body. He had never seen them face to face. Nonetheless, as we've seen already in this first chapter, Paul possessed a love, a genuine godly love, and a desire, a godly desire for this church 
as he explained in chapter 2 of this epistle. If you look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, let's just read them to see this. Paul says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now, Paul is not saying it's through some spiritual discernment that I know where you are in the faith. He's already explained in the first chapter, he had heard testimony of this. He had heard of their faith. But yet the Spirit of God, of course, bears witness of that truth which he is hearing, and he is testifying of his joy for them, but also this conflict he has that they remain faithful in the truth, in the faith to which they had been given. And so he is saying, do not be swayed, do not be enticed by these beguiling words. And within our text, which includes the remaining portion of chapter 1, we see the extent of Paul's joy, of his investment, of his interest, that joy in his life and all that God's call in his life entailed and how that brought joy to him regardless of how it personally affected him. So Paul begins to expound in verse 24 upon his joy as a partaker in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 24 together. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. The first question which must be asked is simply this. Who is the who? Mentioned in verse 24. Paul says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Who who is the who? Within this previous verse, the who is identified. Verse 23, Paul said, I, Paul, am made a minister. So we see the who mentioned in verse 24 is Paul himself. So Paul is saying, and this is important because it is Paul who is saying that he rejoices in his own sufferings. The second question is this, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. How can Paul express joy in suffering? Now, this obviously seems very strange at first. Due to the postmodern views of truth and one's own personal existence. In other words, In a day in which objective truth, absolute truth, is marginalized and dismissed and personal experiences and personal opinions are amplified, it is difficult to comprehend within that context how anyone could view any form of self-sacrifice and or suffering as a source or reason for joy. Listen, you know this to be true. We live, obviously, in a day in which it is all about us. And that has crept drastically within into the church as well, in which people believe that it is all about them. And obviously that's not the case or truth at all. So we find Paul expresses joy in his suffering. So how can this be? Again, verse 24. Who, Paul, now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Before we delve into the truth of these final verses of Colossians chapter 1, I believe it would be beneficial for us to consider 
some truths concerning suffering as referred to in Scripture. And we've considered these truths throughout other studies, such as the book of Romans, when we work through Romans. And just to kind of make a, a way into this text concerning Paul's joy and his sufferings, there are some things we must understand that have been stated previously in Scripture by Paul himself concerning suffering for us to really grasp what Paul is saying and have an appreciation for that which he states in these verses. There are many misconceptions today concerning suffering by many modern-day professing Christians. And I will begin by confessing and stating that I don't know anyone in their right mind who enjoys suffering. And Paul is not saying, oh, I enjoy my suffering. That's not what he is saying. And I don't know anyone in their right mind who enjoys suffering. Yet, as a follower of Jesus Christ, suffering is something which we should never consider to be abnormal. But suffering is that which we consider, should consider to be normal within the life of the, of the child of God. While many professing believers have brought, bought into the lie that life is supposed to be comfortable for all those who follow Jesus Christ, the Scriptures teach the opposite. As followers of Christ, we are promised that we will be comforted in this world. But we are never promised that we will be comfortable in this world. And as a matter of fact, I would venture to say that if you profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you are comfortable in this world, that is a serious spiritual problem. But I will also say, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you do know what it means to be comforted by God in this world. It only stands to reason, since we're not promised to be comfortable, but promised to be comforted, that there is no reason or no need for comfort and consolation if there is no suffering. One can be comfortable having never suffered at all, so to speak, hypothetically speaking. But if one is comforted, it's because there is conflict. There is suffering. There are tribulations and trials and problems. 2 Timothy 1, 3-7, Paul wrote, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all tribulation, that we may become able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For, we, for the, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye also be of the consolation. And just for clarification, I misquoted that. It's actually Second Corinthians. If you look in Second Corinthians chapter 1, you'll find that to be that passage of Scripture. So we find in here that Paul is stating that God is the God of all comfort and that He is the one who comforts us in tribulations. Remember, in context of, of the Corinthian church in which Paul, Paul wrote this, if you recall with me, when he wrote this, it's his second letter, which we have, of course, of Paul to the Corinthian church. And in writing this, he had already rebuked them in the first letter that he had sent to them 
And yet now he is comforting them because they have repented of the ungodliness and their carnality, and now they are more so following after Christ. And in doing so, Paul is now writing them this letter of comfort after this letter of rebuke, not to comfort them from his rebuke, but to comfort them because now they are beginning to understand what it is to identify in the sufferings of Jesus. So as we follow after Christ, we will identify in the sufferings of Christ. And so we understand then that we are partakers of his sufferings, so shall ye also, or be also of the consolation. So the comfort and the consolation comes because of the sufferings. The word consolation means to be encouraged and to console. Therefore, suffering is never to be considered foreign to those who identify with Jesus Christ. One will never be a recipient of the blessings of God in Jesus Christ without also becoming a partaker in his sufferings. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 states, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Verse 13, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. The context of this passage in Hebrews is in relation to Judaism and Christianity. And Jesus Christ went without the gate, as one rejected by the religious Jews of his day, that he might die as God's sacrifice for man's sin. And we as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, as well are to embrace his reproach as people also rejected by the world and religion. This is the point that Paul has made in Colossians. This is what the Hebrew writer is writing of in this text. Paul also told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, and you know this verse well, yea or yes, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I've shared this with you. For years that verse as a young man troubled me somewhat because I thought, obviously this is an absolute definitive statement made by Paul. We believe obviously to be inspired by God that is given to us. And it states that, Every person who lives godly in Christ is going to suffer persecution. So that troubled me to this degree because I said, well, I know a lot of people personally that I thought were following after God. I myself, after being born again, desired to know God and to follow after him. And I've never been beaten for the gospel. I've never been threatened with my life for the sake of the gospel. So I'm going, how does this, how does this verse reconcile with what I know to be in reality And I know this to be true. Well, the word persecution does not always mean what we think it means. The word persecution doesn't mean necessarily or is not limited to being brought before the city council or township and and stripped of your shirt and beaten with a whip or, or threatened to be hung or threatened to be martyred for the cause of Christ. So it can include that, obviously. But persecution in this context literally means opposition and oppression. And so as I look back, I see clearly where all of those who after God in righteousness experience opposition and oppression. So the scripture clearly states that suffering is a reality within the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. Paul declared in Romans that all present suffering pales in comparison to the eternal glory God is working in us through the suffering which we might experience. Romans 8.18, Paul said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
Notice it doesn't say which shall be revealed to us on our behalf. It's that which God is revealing in us. In this text in Romans, we see, Romans 8.18, that Paul also used the present tense and indicative mood as he did in Colossians 1.23, which again means that it is an action and process or state of being with no assessment of that completion. And the indicative mood again is that of assertion. So he is saying here, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. It is absolutely going to be. So in other words, suffering was not merely a possibility. You must understand this. As a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, suffering is not only a possibility of your life, nor is it a reality contingent on culture, on society, on geographic location, or one's devotion in following Jesus Christ alone either. But suffering is a present reality for those who have been made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. For if we are to know his glory, we also know his suffering. Look, this is part of it. And look, this is, this is not something that people want to hear about the gospel. This is not something that everyone says, oh, yes, I, I, I surely want to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ because my desire in this life is that I just go through a life of suffering. But because of that, look at what's happened in the, and look how treacherous this is. Because of that being such a turnoff, men today say, well, we want to make the gospel appealing to people. So we'll just go and tell them, hey, if, if you just quote-unquote accept, and Scripture never tells you to accept Jesus, by the way, we receive him. But if you just accept Jesus, then he's going to fix all your problems. No, when we receive Christ, the problem of all mankind is resolved, and that is the hostility that existed between us and God the Father. But that does not mean that every problem of our lives, especially those which are for the sake of the gospel itself, are resolved. God the Father sent God the Son into the world. Jesus willingly came into the flesh, manifested in the flesh, and suffered in the flesh, was hated in the flesh, was beaten in the flesh, was crucified in the flesh because of the hatred and the animosity and hostility that existed between God and man. So suffering is a reality that that we must acknowledge and recognize. So that brings us to this question then. What should the believer's attitude be in regard to suffering? Romans 8.18 again, Paul wrote, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory of which shall be revealed in us. There are two truths I really want to to grasp within this verse this morning concerning suffering, which we must acknowledge. First of all, we have to see this in the text, that God works through suffering to reveal His glory. Paul stated that there is a glory which shall be revealed in us. God uses suffering within the life of the believer to conform us to the image of Christ. Through suffering, God teaches us to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and to trust that the work He is doing is greater than the suffering itself. Look, there are people who have suffered much more than I have. And I've had my share of suffering in different forms. And you've all had your share of suffering in different forms, in different ways, in different manners. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have had share of suffering in the go- for the gospel's sake, in the sufferings of Christ. You have shared if you know him and are following after him. 
So we know the sufferings of Christ. We, at least we, we've known of the sufferings of Christ, and we, we are to identify in his sufferings. But there is one thing that we do understand as we suffer for the cause of Christ, that the sufficiency of our Savior is greater than the sufferings that we experience. Christ is all-sufficient. Second, the future glory which God is working is far greater than the present suffering, as I just mentioned. God is predetermined to conform us to the image of His Son. 1 Peter 2, 21-23, I referenced this a moment ago. Peter wrote, For even here in two were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know, one thing I learned years ago, God vindicates his truth. And if you are standing in truth, if you are living in truth, if you are proclaiming the truth, God will vindicate that. And it may not even be in this lifetime. It sometimes is, and it may not always be. But God will vindicate truth. Let me show you how that ultimately happens. Are you ready? It's very simple. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is absolute vindication of truth. Is Jesus Lord? Is he the Christ? Is the gospel the truth? And no matter how many reject and how many resist and how many refute and how many attempt to dismiss, how many rebel against the gospel, one day every single person will humbly bow and willingly confess Jesus is God. He is Lord. It shall happen. So if Christ suffered when he did no wrong... Why would we expect not to suffer when Jesus is the very personification of the righteousness of God, the perfection of the righteousness of God in the flesh? Why would we think that we would not or should not suffer? God uses all things, including suffering, to fulfill His purpose of conforming us into the image of His Son. Again, Romans 8, 28 and 29, you know these verses, and I never like to quote verse 28 without 29. I think it's a great disservice to the text to do so. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God has determined and purposed to conform us to the image of his Son, and all things are working together for that purpose. And here's the reality of it. That is good. That is good. Hear, hear me please this morning. It is good that we be conformed to the image of Christ. But you also need to understand, it is a painful experience to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm reminded again of the potter and the clay. And you the clay on the will of the potter, as Jeremiah 18 tells us. And speaking of Israel, of course, but he's speaking of how God was was molding, and he says he took the clay, he didn't throw it away, what did he do? He put it back on the wheel, worked it all over again, and, and he's constantly working. As you think of our lives being conformed to the image of Christ, what it literally means is that God is, is actually removing everything about us that does not look like Jesus, which means 
that every single one of us carry a whole lot more spiritual weight than we do physical weight. Because there is a whole lot about us that doesn't look like Jesus. And God is conforming us. He is cutting away. He's knocking away everything that does not resemble, that does not look like our Lord. And I will tell you whether you want to face the fact or not, I say this about myself first, but I include you with me because it's true of all of us, that we have a lot that needs to be chipped away and knocked off. And here we find Paul in verse 24 stating that he was rejoicing. Notice again with me. Who now rejoice? I, Paul, am a minister. Who now, I, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Again, notice with me. Paul is saying that the afflictions of Christ have yet to fully have been manifested and experienced in this world, but it's not that people or the world is able to literally persecute Jesus himself because he's with the Father in a glorified body, but here's what he, they, the world and Satan will do. They will persecute the body of Christ which is present. And Paul is saying we must expect there to be affliction we must expect there to be suffering and one of the reasons as to why we expect this is because we understand that the afflictions of christ have not yet all been in that we are identified in his sufferings and therefore suffer for his case for his cause as followers of jesus christ suffering is good however in that one it drives us to depend upon our lord jesus christ and his strength you know the times when i find myself realizing that I, am, I must be so dependent upon the Lord Jesus and His sufficiency as times where I'm suffering. It also draws genuine believers together in the purity of fellowship. Again, anyone can identify and say, oh, I like to be part of the church, or oh, I want to join in the fellowship. Oh, I like good times we have here, but what about when we're suffering for the cause of Christ? How many really want to join in fellowship with that? Those who are identifying in His sufferings want to. And there's purity in the fellowship when there's suffering in the fellowship for the sake of the gospel. Not suffering for sin's sake, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Third, it delivers us from having a worldly attitude and view of this life. When we are suffering, you know what it does? It, it refocuses us. It causes us to look to Jesus. It causes us to rest and depend on Him. And it also causes us to have a longing within us to be absent from a world, not that persecutes us, but from a world that hates truth so much and hates the gospel. And fourth, it demonstrates that we have identified the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering is not pleasant. I confess that to you. Suffering is not pleasant. And Paul is not saying, oh, I enjoy suffering. But Paul understood, and we should as well, that suffering is necessary. And through suffering, we are reminded that there is an eternity that awaits where not only will there be no more suffering, which that's wonderful, but also in which we realize the glory the Lord has produced through suffering through the suffering of this life. 2 Corinthians four, seventeen and 18, Paul wrote, for our light affliction. And again, I have to mention this here. In Acts, you remember the conversion of Paul. The Lord tells Ananias, he says, I will show him, Paul, what great things he, Paul, must suffer for my Jesus' namesake. Remember that? So God says, I'm gonna, Paul's going to suffer great for my namesake, greatly. But now look at what Paul says, for our light affliction. Our light affliction is but for a moment. Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, 
that the things which are seen are not seen are eternal. If you think with me, you'll find that this eternal perspective, it, it determines our focus, and we find that to be true um, it, it, as we consider the fact that we, in, in 2 Corinthians, where Paul wrote that, we see that whenever he goes on to explain the truth of what eternal perspective is in chapter 5, the next verses following after what we just read in, in Corinthians, he says that this eternal perspective determines our focus in verse 1. Then he explains that this eternal perspective governs our desire, verses 2 through 4. And then he says that having an eternal perspective provides confidence in God's promises and his provisions, verses 5 through 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so what we find is that this eternal perspective is something that God uses in our lives and he brings suffering in our lives many times to give us, to cause us to have that eternal perspective, recognizing that we are dependent upon Christ, that there's more to this suffering than just simply meets the eye, and that also God is working this suffering for his eternal glory. And the only way that we notice that we can look at, view at this as Paul did when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, when he says, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's temporary, and it works a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. But then verse 18 is the key to this. Paul says, while we look not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are, seen, are not seen are eternal. So we too can rejoice. When we ask about Paul and his suffering and say, how is it that, that Paul could rejoice in suffering? Again, he's not saying, I, I take pleasure in suffering. He was not masochistic. He wasn't saying, oh, I want to be in pain. I want to suffer. What he's saying is I can have joy and do have joy in suffering because I understand the reason I'm suffering. I understand the, the purpose behind it. I understand the, the work that is being accomplished through it. And I understand that much of this is for your sakes, for the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I began earlier, I said to you in a postmodern age in which we view everything very subjectively and self-focused, self-centered, that would make no sense whatsoever. But from a scriptural, biblical perspective, it makes perfect sense. And it's something we must understand. We too can rejoice when we partake in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the gospel. First Peter 4.13, and I'm finished. Peter writes, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. When his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. We do not enjoy suffering. I don't enjoy suffering. I'm not pretending as though I do. But I will tell you, if we suffer for the cause of Christ, identifying in his sufferings, we can rejoice. For God is working his purpose, his redemption, his sanctification, and his glory in and through us in the midst of the suffering. Hence, Paul was able to say, who now rejoice, I, Paul, now rejoice in my sufferings for you, for the church, for the body of Christ. Let's stand together in prayer. Father,